What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello there. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, it's not just Democrats, it's Republicans too. Everybody's fed up with Congress. In the latest poll, only 21% of Americans approved of the job Congress is doing. 75% registered their disapproval. And that's no doubt why. It's like they're not only not doing anything and getting anything done, it's like they don't even want to get anything done. In the Senate, no matter what the issue is or how important it is, if Joe Biden's for it, every Republican is against it. That's Mitch McConnell's rule. And with Republicans about to take over control of the House, they haven't proposed one single new policy or program. Instead, all they promise is a string of pointless investigations of Hunter Biden, Dr. Fauci, the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and whoever else Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to investigate or impeach. You know, it's enough to make veteran congressional experts like the American Enterprise Institute's Norm Ornstein shake their heads in disbelief. How bad is it? Well, today we ask Norm Ornstein. We get a chance to talk to him about the state of Congress today. Norm Ornstein, so good to connect with you again. Thanks for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. And happy holidays to you and Carol, Bill. Thanks, Norm. So you and, I mean, look, your career has been following Congress. You love it as an institution. You've written so much about it, followed it so carefully for so many years. Have you ever seen it as bad as it is today? No. And I've seen bad times, of course, in the past. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, uh, Tom Mann and I wrote this book in 2012. It's even worse than it looks. Um, we did a paperback the next year called It's Even Worse Than It Was. And people uh, asked me what the next one would be. And I joked, uh, run for your lives. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, it's significantly worse than it was back when it was really, really bad. And the main reason, I would say, is that the Republican Party, which we referred to in 2012, 10 years ago as an insurgent outlier, is now a full-blown cult. And that's certainly true of Republicans in Congress. And, you know, we could argue uh, about the makeup of the Republicans in the House and Senate. Uh, what I would say is there are fundamentally two groups, radical extremists and cowards. Hmm. And the handful that didn't fit those categories, pretty much gone now. Uh, and as we look to a Republican majority in the House uh, coming up, slender though it may be, it's not just that they're going to try and uh, basically uh, eviscerate any possibilities of the Biden administration doing anything for the country or the world 
through uh, Benghazi-like investigations of Hunter Biden and of Afghanistan and of Alejandro Mayorkas and the border and of uh, the State Department because of Afghanistan and as of the Justice Department uh, and impeachments of many figures. Uh, you know, those are terrible uh, distractions and and just not legitimate actions for the most part. And it's not like they're doing investigations to try to get to the bottom of anything or to look for ways of improving governance. It's just destructive. But the big problem is they can't pass legislation, but they can use the power of the purse to devastating effect. The debt limit, um, which we came close to uh, breaching in 2011, and we came close enough, even though it didn't happen, that interest rates went up and uh, it cost taxpayers at least $18 billion just by toying with it. Mm. Back then, Jason Chaffetz, uh, one of the more radical members, said, we would have gone right over the cliff. We meant it. Uh, but they were stopped by John Boehner, who I think really believed that it would be terribly destructive for the country. It was basically the only ability that he had to keep something bad from happening. And by Mitch McConnell, who I believe was motivated more by believing it would be bad for Republicans. But it didn't matter. They stopped it. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think they can stop it unless Democrats act in the uh, lame duck session to try and keep it from happening. And then they're going to try and uh, stop government funding for any investigations in the Justice Department, for any actions on the border, for anything having to do with uh, COVID or other uh, pandemic protection looking down the road, funding for Ukraine, you name it. We've had bad problems and issues before. This is just so much worse than the Tea Party era. Uh, you know, you almost wish that we had people who were as sane as some of those Tea Party radicals now. And finally, on this, mm-hmm. let me say, Bill, that I don't know if uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to make it. Uh, I had been skeptical for a long time about McCarthy because his colleagues know that even though he kowtows to the most radical forces, doing everything he can to cultivate the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. They know he doesn't really believe it, that he's just a weakling, and that plenty of them would want to go for somebody who is a true believer. So perhaps he doesn't make it as speaker. But if he doesn't make it as speaker, and if there aren't 10 Republicans coming into the new Congress who don't fit the definition of extremist or coward, who would go along with uh, a, a different, better alternative, will end up with somebody more radical than Kevin McCarthy and more willing to go along with the nutcases. And in fact, I mean, um, as you point out, their agenda, the only agenda we've heard from McCarthy or any of the others, um, this endless series of investigations they want to launch, you mentioned Hunter Biden, January 6th, Anthony Fauci, right? Go down the yep. list. Uh Whatever happened to the party of ideas, right? I mean, there is no discussion of any policies that they would want to pursue if they're given the leadership in the Congress. Well, there's a discussion of one policy that they want to pursue, or two, let me put it uh, together, that John Thune, the number two Senate Republican in the leadership, talked about just the other day, and that is using the debt ceiling as a bludgeon 
to mm. get a combination of more tax cuts for corporations and the rich and to eviscerate Social Security and Medicare. But yeah. as a positive policy, we haven't seen that in a very, very long time, Bill. Did it start with Newt Gingrich in the House? You know, I would make the case and did uh, back both with the book that Tom and I did in 2006, The Broken Branch, and in this one, that Newt was the progenitor of a lot of this. I do think that the tribalism that we have in the country, which has, of course, taken over at all levels, including with the public, that Newt had more to do with that than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, right next in line would probably be the Murdochs and Fox and uh, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, but let's keep in mind that a lot of the pathologies here go back before Newt as well. They go back to the dark periods in the 1930s, not just isolationism, but Father Coughlin, anti-Semitism and racism. Uh, it goes to playing with uh, the uh, issue of voting and uh, uh, race baiting, the law and order uh, element of it back uh, in the Nixon era, uh, the Southern strategy. A lot of that stuff was a progenitor, but Newt was a major factor and an accelerant. And it's really important to keep in mind that all of this was well underway before Donald Trump came along. He was a product, not a cause. He's been an accelerant, not a cause. And it's important to remember that if Trump goes, however he goes, whether he, you know, legs off to a Dasha outside of Moscow <laughs> or uh, the LIV uh, tour in Saudi Arabia, um, or uh, is indicted and put in prison, what, whatever happens, uh, Trumpism and the evil elements of it are still going to be there. And that's evident in this new majority coming into the House. And frankly, what we're seeing with some of the uh, new people like J.D. Vance coming into the Senate. So like you, um, I have been skeptical for a long time that uh, Kevin McCarthy, no matter how badly he wants it, will ever get the votes. You know, they, they stabbed him in the back once before. Uh, and I think <laughs> there are a lot of people who want to do it uh, again. But were he to get it, uh, the job, Norm, there's no doubt, right? He would not be pulling the strings, right? The strings would be pulled by the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Paul Gosards of this world. Absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and I, I have to say, Bill, you know, I've now been kicking around the hill for more than 50 years. I've known virtually every leader, House and Senate, Democrat and Republican, worked with many of them closely, including Democrats and Republicans. I know the history as well. Yeah. I do not believe that there has been a worse leader in House or Senate, and that includes Denny Hastert and Newt Gingrich, than <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. I do not think there could be a worse speaker than Kevin McCarthy. He is a contemptible figure uh, in almost every respect. And more, made more contemptible, I think, because in so many ways he does know better. Let's remember that it was Kevin McCarthy on the conference call with all the, all the House Republicans when Paul Ryan was uh, Speaker, who said, well, at least there are two people on the Russian payroll, Dana Rohrabacher uh, and Donald Trump. Mm. 
to great applause or laughter, I should say, and Paul Ryan saying, don't anybody repeat that. Then we know what he said to Trump on January 6th when the rioters were approaching the House floor and he uh, felt uh, concern for his own life, demanding that Trump do something about it. Trump was contemptuous of him and said, well, Kevin, maybe they uh, care about the election more than you do. He went on the House floor after January 6th and said that Trump was significantly to blame. And then what happens? Two weeks later, he's down kissing Trump's ass at Mar-a-Lago. We know that he uh, went in to punish Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinsinger and did nothing when Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared with Nick Fuentes, the Nazi, or uh, condemn or certainly be very critical of Donald Trump, even though Trump has attacked his wife endlessly with the most racist terms possible. And you just you know, wonder. Before the election, all that McConnell cared about was trying to win the Senate majority. And so no matter what Trump said, the most vile things about Elaine Chao, his wife, McConnell was not going to criticize him and create a possible division in his own party. Of course, what we also saw with McConnell is that he condemned Trump after January 6th, but then made sure that the impeachment (laughs) would not result in conviction. Right. And we know that now, although he took his sweet time about it, he did condemn Trump for meeting uh, with and having a meal with Kanye West and uh, Nick Fuentes. Uh, but he wouldn't do anything about that either. Uh, This is not a man with a solid moral core. Or backbone, it seems. Uh, Let's look across the aisle. Uh, Norm, after 20 years of leadership of the Democrats in the Hill, Nancy Pelosi steps down. He's going to stay there in that Congress, at least for a while, and hands the baton over to the next generation, Have we seen in our lifetime a speaker as effective as Nancy Pelosi? Not even close, Bill. Now, you know, I knew and really liked Tip O'Neill. Tip was in so many ways a larger-than-life figure. (laughs) He was uh, adept uh, at the job. Um, uh, You know, since Sam Rayburn, uh, before Pelosi, you would say that Tip O'Neill was the model of a strong speaker and, you know, a a force of of, uh, personality. Uh, But nobody comes close to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Nobody. And I think that goes back even further. You know, you look at Rayburn and uh, Sam Rayburn, of course, uh, historically just a, a towering figure. And there are two things that Rayburn did that stand out. One is at the most critical time, when the votes weren't there, he found the votes to maintain the selective service system before we entered World War II. And if that had not been done, uh, we either wouldn't have gone in or we would have lost uh, to mm. Hitler and the Nazis. And that might uh, have made Nick Fuentes happy, but it wouldn't make the rest of us. Um, the second is all of the Democrats' social welfare legislation and civil rights bills were being bottled up completely by Howard Smith, Judge Smith of Virginia, a segregationist, racist, uh, 
ultra-conservative chair of the House Rules Committee, and he had the votes to be able to block it. And at great risk, uh, Rayburn managed to enlarge the Rules Committee and take that power away from him. And that made it possible for a lot of important legislation, uh, including after uh, Rayburn was gone, uh, including civil rights bills uh, and uh, probably Medicare. Uh, so those were huge. But he had you know, challenges uh, in his pretty large majorities. All those Southern Democrats, he had to figure out how to work with them as well as uh, the Northern liberals. But I don't think anywhere close to the challenges that Pelosi faced. Uh, and she was just an uh, uh, has been uh, an incredible figure as speaker. I would say the most significant in history. Norm Ornstein, our guest from the American Enterprise Institute on today's Bill Press Pod. Uh, Norm, l- we haven't even gotten to really uh, the former president and what he's been up to lately. Uh, I want to also ask you about the Supreme Court, uh, some ethical issues coming up there as well. Uh, let's hold that after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. And today's podcast with Norm Ornstein brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Members of the Laborers Union nationwide involved in providing health care uh, in the energy field, building everything from old-fashioned, old-fashioned pipelines to new wind turbines and solar panels and especially involved in infrastructure, rebuilding America's infrastructure. Thanks to the infrastructure bill signed by President Biden, the membership of the Labor's Union has jumped up to 600,000 now. That's 100,000 new members just because of that infrastructure bill, more members and more working hours for members of the Labor's Union, thanks to Joe Biden. We salute the members of the Labor's Union Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod and direct you to their website to find out more about all the exciting things they're involved in at liuna.org, L-I-U-N-A dot org. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's guest, uh, Norm Ornstein. He's the author of the great book, uh, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, Emeritus Scholar now at the American Enterprise Institute and someone who knows uh, the Congress, I think, better than uh, anybody who's ever served there, uh, in fact, then knows it better than most members who are still serving there, I believe. So, Norm, um, would you ever think you would see the day when a former president would actually sit down, have dinner with a Holocaust denier, white supremacist, basically American Nazi, and not apologize for it? <laughs> not say he was sorry he did it, just basically excuse it, and then kind of get away with it as far as his fellow Republicans are concerned. How do you, what's your take on this? Let me first talk about his fellow Republicans, uh, Bill, because this also tells you something about what's happened uh, to a political party that as a legitimate party uh, is in demise. Remember that before this, Tommy Tuberville, senator from Alabama, at a rally, made a series of just vile, racist statements. Not one Senate Republican condemned them. When Kanye West made his first anti-Semitic statements and then doubled down on them, the House Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, led by Jim Jordan, who will soon, sadly, be chair of that committee, did a tweet on October 6th, three words, Elon, period, Kanye, period, Trump, period. That stayed Mm -hmm. up until yesterday and came down only after Kanye West on, of all shows, Alex Jones's, said uh, positive things about Adolf Hitler, said everybody has uh, positive qualities, especially Adolf Hitler. So, you know, Trump didn't have to worry about his party going after him for uh, any of these things. And of course, we know about Trump that apology is not a word that is in his lexicon to begin with. There's a long, long history of racism, a long, long history of turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. But there's another factor I think we have to take into account here, Bill, uh, which other people have commented on and which I think is accurate. Trump is in deep shit. We're moving towards indictments in Georgia mm-hmm. and uh, by the federal government and the Justice Department and this new special counsel who by every standard is just really, really tough and aggressive. And probably on two fronts uh, at the federal level, one is the theft of documents, the obstruction of justice and the cover-up with many of them being highly sensitive documents that he had no right to that belong to the government and the American people at Mar-a-Lago. And God knows what there is at Bedminster or uh, Trump Tower. The second, of course, being his role in the insurrection on January 6th. We know in New York that Tish James, the attorney general, has him on the ropes in terms of whether his organization, the Trump organization, can survive. 
we're uh, finally going to have a new commissioner of the IRS after Trump lick spittle Charles Reddick will be leaving. And it's quite possible that the IRS will go after him for nearly a billion dollars of tax fraud and evasion. He's in big trouble. We know that a lot of Republican elites are starting to get their distance from him. Even a grasping, ultra-ambitious Nikki Haley (laughs) saying it's time for new leadership. Uh, That hasn't hit the masses yet. But what we know is that Trump is looking for anybody who will give him support and encouragement. And the ones who are doing so more than any other are the most radical and extreme in the society. He is regularly, uh, he doesn't use Twitter, but in the statements he makes or things that he does on Truth Social, he is referring pretty regularly to QAnon and other conspiracy theorists. And then we have this dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. And he can say, lying, of course, that he had no idea who Nick Fuentes was. But even if that had a grain of truth, he sure knew who Kanye West was and what Kanye right. West had said. So this is, a, uh, in part, uh, a desperation on Trump's uh, part, which not only doesn't excuse it, but because he has such a following among Republican voters out there, continues to have such a following, it still legitimizes the most vile elements, racism and anti-Semitism, uh, that the society has to contend with. And as he goes more and more toward the fringe, uh, which seems to be the only place that he can find undying support these days, do you think Republicans will finally break with him? I mean, we've seen so many other opportunities they've had to do so, Norm, and they and they haven't. They may be a little critical, and they always line up behind him, right? Well, um, if, if this if time I... is this the time. If I had my uh, druthers, Bill, we would see a civil war on the Republican Party right (laughs) Right. now, where some of the elites break with Trump, a lot of the mass goes with him, and they all fight amongst themselves. My fear is this. Go back to 2015, 2016. Those elites were nearly unanimous in their condemnation of Trump. Right. Starting, of course, with the one who was most vitriolic about Trump. Lindsey Graham, but going across the board, and he won the nomination. Now, how did he do that? He didn't do it by winning the hearts and minds of the vast majority of Republicans. He did it because of the rules that they have on how they select delegates. Those rules are still there. They're basically winner take all in these primaries. Yep. The big hope for Trump is that a bunch of other wannabes get into this race that even if he's in jail or discredited in so many ways, he still runs. And all he has to do is what he did in 2016. You get 30% in South Carolina, you win all the delegates. Uh, You can uh, pile up delegates, even if your support has diminished significantly, because it's still pretty likely that he'll have more core support among those active voters than any of the others. I doubt very much that we'll see this tremendous coalescence around Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Let me say that the more the mainstream media view DeSantis as a reasonable alternative to Trump, the more it makes me nauseous. He is America's Victor Orban. Uh, He is a fascist or at least an authoritarian in the making. 
But I also don't think he'll stand up at, uh, under primetime scrutiny. And there'll be plenty of other wannabes from Josh Hawley to uh, Nikki Haley to Christy Nome uh, to uh, Ted Cruz coming back again. Uh, but I can't rule Trump out, even if more of these elites decide that it's time to get some distance from him. So uh, as we speak, um, and as this podcast airs, is Election Day uh, in Georgia with Herschel Walker, uh, the Republican nominee. Uh, as a student of the Senate, Norm, um, do, you, do you consider Herschel Walker Senate material? Well, Bill, you and I remember Bill Scott of Virginia, who held a press conference after a now defunct magazine called him the dumbest senator, <laughs> in which he not only denied that he was the dumbest <laughs> senator, but he produced a, peep of, a piece of paper from a psychiatrist declaring uh, that. So, you know, the standard here is not exactly high, but Herschel Walker doesn't even meet the Bill Scott standard. Uh, now, you can uh, feel a little bit of sympathy for somebody who's probably been suffering for a long time with CTE from his football career. But even put that aside, he's a vile man. This is a man who's used physical threats against his ex-wife, who's lied about his children, who is probably not a legitimate candidate because he not only has not lived in Georgia for uh, a long time, but he's taken the exemption, the homestead exemption in Texas, which you can yeah. only take by saying right. that that is your primary residence. Put all of that out there, and then you get to the bad news, which is even though he's been trailing in almost every survey, it's too damn close. Yep. 46, 47, 48% of Georgians still say they'll vote for a man who manifestly is unqualified to serve in any office who is a, a serial liar, who has had a problem with violent behavior in his own life many times, who is a hypocrite. The list goes on and on, and it's a part of the, uh, the cancer of tribalism, that people look at that and it's still, well, he's one of us. And Reverend Warnock, boy, talk about a contrast, a brilliant man, a true person of God, who's been a superb senator, and it's, yeah, but he's one of them. Let's let's just hope that things come out our way today uh, in Georgia. Before we move on, I do want to close on a positive note. Before we do, uh, <laughs> this is not necessarily your territory, but um, the Supreme Court, in which has fallen so much in public estimation yep. and reputation, and lately we see... There's two cases of pretty clear leaking on the part of Samuel Alito and Justice Roberts doing nothing about it. You've tweeted about this, Norm. I mean, it's pretty outrageous, isn't it? It's d disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. For a long time, every, every time the issue of the Judicial Code of Ethics, which the Administrative Conference, uh, Judicial Conference, has applied to all federal judges except the Supreme Court. Every time that issue has come up, when John Roberts has been the Chief Justice, his response is, we don't need it because we can trust the ethics of our members. Yeah, now, right. Now, remember when the leak came of the uh, decision in Dobbs, 
Roberts went ballistic and said, we're going to do a full-scale investigation. He turned on the uh, prosecutorial uh, uh, faucet in the court itself, and then nothing, not a word, which tells us very likely he knew that the source, if it were not Sam Alito, could have been Clarence Thomas, could have been Ginny Thomas, could have been one of their clerks, but he wasn't going to push it any further. He didn't even give a sort of progress report. Right. He interviewed all of the clerks, and of course, they didn't interview the justices, um, and we can't get anywhere. They were going to apply lie detector tests. There's a whole lot there. Let it go. Despite all of these uh, instances of unethical behavior or questionable ethical behavior. And remember, Clarence Thomas, even after he knew and we knew, and of course he says that his wife, Jenny, is his best friend. They communicate about everything. It's hard to imagine he didn't know it even beforehand, but knew that his wife had been deeply engaged in the process before January 6th, encouraging actions to go to the Capitol. How can you not recuse yourself with a case that might involve your spouse directly? But he did not. We've had multiple cases since where he has not recused himself. This is not ethical behavior. We're now learning about all of these instances of justices being wined and dined mm -hmm. by far-right groups, including uh, extreme pro-life groups, to try and get uh, favorable opinions from justices, but also advanced knowledge. There's pretty substantial evidence that Sam Alito did that in terms of an earlier case. Nothing from the chief justice. And then let's look in another direction as well. And there are a couple of other things I'd want to mention here, Bill. Please. One is after the Dobbs decision, Sam Alito went to Rome and gave a speech that was almost like a victory dance, mm -hmm. one that a uh, football player would give in the end zone, uh, spiking the ball. Uh, even as they uh, tried to say that their decisions are based on uh, judicial behavior and not on partisanship or ideology, and putting the lie to that. Then we let's turn to Amy Coney Barrett. Nominated uh and confirmed right before the 2020 election 8 days before when the nomination occurred Trump hold, held a big party at the White House and made a campaign ad with Amy Coney Barrett that is not something that a nominee for the Supreme Court should be doing it was utterly unethical she went along with a complete breach of ethics by having a confirmation jammed through eight days before the election. And then this past year appears with Mitch McConnell at his institute in Kentucky to say, we're not just a bunch of partisan hacks, <clears throat> basically proving that she was a partisan hack. Uh, there's so much that has soiled this Supreme Court under John Roberts it's fundamentally Alito's court, not John Roberts's court, but it's his position as chief justice that has done nothing to try and bring, bring back any patina of legitimacy. And it's really uh, tragic.
Uh, I want to circle back to Newt Gingrich here for a second, Norm, because um, you and I maybe I certainly was, maybe you were surprised to see Newt Gingrich writing a column in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week saying that Joe Biden is actually doing pretty well as president, had a, had a phenomenal first two years, he said. Uh, he is winning, and Republicans are making a big mistake in underestimating Joe Biden. Is Newt right for once? For once, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I've known Newt since 1979, right after he came to Congress. Um, Tom Ann and I uh, started uh, in January of uh, 1979, after the 78 election, a series of pretty regular, small, off-the-record dinners with new members of Congress mm. uh, to try and track them through their first two years. And we had quite a group, Newt, Dick Cheney, uh, Geraldine Ferraro among them. Uh, and Newt was uh, actually, even then, knew exactly what the strategy and tactics were to try and create a Republican majority in the House. Uh, Newt had some pragmatism in different ways combined with all the evil stuff. The last couple of years before this, he's been a complete lackey for the worst elements of Trump. Right. Uh, you know, going on Fox, going on some of these other networks and the like. And so this is a surprise. And I think it's, <coughs> excuse me, understanding after this midterm election that his Republican Party could blow themselves up if they're not careful. Uh, and trying to basically send a warning shot across their bow. But he's certainly right at how many people have underestimated Biden. Uh, you know, he is not as smooth as some others. Uh, there have been obvious flaws as well. But if you consider, uh, and let me take this back, if you and I had been sitting at the inaugural of Joe Biden on January 20th, uh, 2021. Um, and I had turned to you and said, you know what, Bill, we got a tied Senate 50, 50. We have a three to five vote margin for Democrats in the house. And we know that in the house, you've got a substantial progressive caucus along with a substantial, uh, center, center right mm -hmm. group. Uh, we know that he's not going to get Republican support for almost anything. And we're going to have in his first two years, three to four billion dollars, a trillion dollars in COVID relief, in infrastructure and in safety net protections. And without any Republican support, more judges confirmed in the first year and the first two years than any president before him. You would have turned to me and said, "You're nuts." Can I have some of what you've been smoking, uh, or you're nuts? Whatever it might have been, um, and that's what happened. And you know, it's not all because of Joe Biden. I give a lot of credit to Nancy Pelosi for the uh, Inflation Protection Act. I'll give some credit to Chuck Schumer for pulling that off. There were those setbacks, people putting a lot more trust in Joe Manchin and then Kristen Sinema than they obviously deserved. 
uh, and we're not over the battles yet, including on that debt ceiling that I'd mentioned earlier and on the appropriations. But uh, under the circumstances, this is a hell of a performance for a president. Mm -hmm. And he has won, do you believe, the right at least to make the decision on whether or not he runs again? Well, he certainly has, has done that. Now, we have no idea where we're going to be a year from now, and we have no idea what his health is going to be. Uh, but yes, he's earned that right. And, you know, I have all kinds of people saying to me, you know, it would be better if he announced today that he's not going to run. It would give him more legitimacy. You and I have been around long enough to know what happens when you are oh, a yeah. duck. Yeah. Uh, your own party fractures because all the other pretenders and contenders come forward and they're just as concerned about undermining their rivals uh, as anything else. And we know that the Democrats would face a huge dilemma if he doesn't run, which is how do you deny the nomination to an heir apparent who is the first woman and the first person of color to serve as vice president of the United States, but you're going to have an awful lot of people out there who believe uh, that they would be better at that job. So uh, I'd like him to announce that he's going to run or to say nothing until much, much <laughs> later in the game. Right. Uh, Norm, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask you one final question, which I promise, which is, <laughs> so um, when you look at the midterms, uh, not only was there no red wave, uh, as predicted, but the system, for the most part, really worked across the country. Um, the, most of the election deniers lost across the country. There were very few challenges to the election results. The one in Arizona just failed. There's a little one still kind of kicking along in Pennsylvania, but not very serious. Does that give you uh, any hope that we may have turned the corner in a sense and that uh, our democracy will survive? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the good news is that the people who could be the most uh, destructive and insidious running for uh, governors uh, in states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, running for secretary of state in those states and others, they all lost. Uh, so some of the nightmare scenarios that we feared... Um, of you know, state legislatures overturning the legitimate results of the election and governors going along with it mm -hmm. are much less likely to happen. But we are far from being out of the woods. Uh, 2020 uh, was a beta test for people trying to overturn the results of an election. The country is still too closely divided for my taste on this front. The possibilities of undermining are great. The, the next Congress that will make the decisions, I think, is more likely than not to have a Republican majority in the Senate uh, because the uh, you know task for Democrats in 2024 uh, is daunting. There are only a dozen Republicans up, and they're almost all from very red, very safe states. Right. And there are vulnerable Democrats, a number of them. Um, and you worry about what chicanery might occur there. It's imperative that we get uh, the Electoral Count Act revised in a robust fashion to prevent any of that from happening. But 
you know, I think you and I would probably have been looking for another place to live if the election <laughs> had turned out to be that red wave, especially in those uh, states. Norm Ornstein, thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for years and years of uh, good work. Uh, keep trucking. I know you will. How can uh, our listeners follow you on Twitter, uh, Norm, when you and I are not together on the podcast? I'm still there. It's at Norm Ornstein. At Norm Ornstein. All right. Yep. Thanks, Norm. Happy holidays. We'll talk again soon. Same to you. And that's it for today's podcast. We salute President Terry O'Sullivan and members of the Labor's Union again. Thank you all for joining us today, and we invite you back for our Reporters Roundtable, always one of your favorites, and this Friday we'll have lots of report on this uh, kind of last week of Congress before they break for Christmas, so there'll be a lot going on. That's Friday morning, our Reporters Roundtable. Meantime, have a great week. Let's go, go, go. Raphael Warnock in Georgia. We'll talk all about it on Friday with the Reporters Roundtable. We'll see you then.